0: If you have your Bibles today, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59, and welcome to week one of a new series that's going to have us walking through the armor of God. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to walk through today Isaiah 59, and then next week starting in Ephesians 6. But let me kind of set this up this way. I love God because he first loved me. I trust Christ because he has proved himself over and over and over again to be absolutely trustworthy. Yet, the more I seek to obey the Lord, the harder life gets. Let me say it again. The The more I seek to obey the Lord, the harder life gets. Do you ever wonder why you have more problems now as a Christian than you did before you were saved? Maybe you've asked that question before. Maybe some of you are asking that question right now. But that question is based on the false assumption that once you're saved, all your struggles end. As if, once I'm saved, there's going to be no more difficulties, no more battles, no more hurts, and no more... Pains, And yet we come to Christ, and guess what? A lot of pain, a lot of difficulties, a lot of battles. It's almost as if once we get a Savior, we also awaken an enemy. There's an enemy that's awakened. Could it be that right now there is a spiritual battle waging all around us in the unseen realm that affects the physical world in which we live in? I'm afraid, I'm afraid that many professing believers live their life day in and day out with no thought whatsoever to the spiritual world in which they live. Listen, there's a spiritual reality that we must start with, and that is this. We live in a spiritual world, and we are in a spiritual war. Let me say it again. We live in a spiritual world, and we are in a spiritual war. I'm going to say some things today. I'm going to get very fired up because my prayer is I, I'm praying for this fellowship of believers that God would awaken us to the reality of the battle that we are in. Let me give you a date. Tuesday, June 6th, 1944 at six thirty a.m. Let me do it again in case some of you might recognize it. Tuesday, June 6, 1944, at 6... Th- RJ's got it. 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France for the largest invasion in modern history, what we know today as, as D-Day. Some of the men that survived this invasion said they remember the steady stream of exhortations being broadcast over the ship intercoms in the final minutes as the ship approached the French beaches and here's what they remember hearing fight to get your troops ashore fight to save your ships and if you've got any strength left fight to save yourself we may die on the sands of France but we will never turn back another remembers these words this is it pick it up put it on, you've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. Over 2,500 Americans died that day, many in a span of 15 minutes. Just imagine that reality. As the boats reached the shore, disembarking soldiers literally had to climb over the bodies of other soldiers to get to shore. Images like that not only stir my heart, they they make me so thankful for the men and women who have given their lives to earn the freedoms that we have and to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. So thankful. But the reason I emphasize this today is for this reason. The men that approached the beach at Normandy that day had no delusions whatsoever of what they were walking into. None of them thought for a moment they were walking up to some exotic beach and they were there for a vacation. They knew they were walking headfirst into the onslaught of an enemy who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. That's what they knew. Listen, when you know that there's somebody out to kill you, you live differently. When, there's, when you know there's someone out to destroy you, you will live differently. And the Bible tells us there is a Roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. At the end of the book of Ephesians, we'll get to this next week, but Paul pulls back the curtain on practical Christian living and shows us that we are in the midst of a battle with an enemy even greater than Hitler. And the tragedy of our time, though, is that we, many professing Christians, don't even think about, it, have no idea they're in a battle. We approach life as it's. If it's a vacation instead of a war, or we think that Christian life is just on a playground and God just puts us on a swing and we just swing until eternity. Instead of the fact that when we're saved, we are placed on a battlefield. For you see, we, you might wish that reality of, of a spiritual battle doesn't exist, but it won't change That we are really in a battle. There is a real enemy. And there are eternal ramifications for what happens in this life. Let me just say this this morning. Unless many of us wake up, you will be a casualty of war. Unless we wake up, we will have casualties of war among us. Listen, there is a war waging around us. It's a cosmic conflict which... The ferocity of, the size of it, the scope of it makes all other wars pale in comparison. And this battle in the spiritual realm affects every physical life in this room and in this world. In fact, let me just give you the words of Ian Duguid who said this, Serving in the Lord's army is not an option reserved for those particularly devoted to God. The choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian, but whether you will be a prepared Christian soldier or an unprepared one. And an unprepared soldier of flesh and blood will not be able to stand against the scale of the spiritual forces raging against him and her. You know what that means? Let me interpret that. Unless we understand the battle that we're in, we have no chance. Unless you understand the battle that you're in, we have no chance. And instead of jumping right into Ephesians 6, and I promise we'll get there next week, I want to begin by going to where Paul's mind probably went when he began to think about this battle and the armor that we have. Now, many commentators say that Paul was inspired as he looked around the Roman world that he lived in and saw Roman soldier after Roman soldier wearing their distinctive armor that both identified them as a Roman soldier and also kept them prepared for any battle or skirmish that might come up. And although those who lived during Paul's day who read the words of Paul might have immediately thought about the Roman soldiers around them when they thought about armor, the armor that Paul describes here in Ephesians 6 that we're going to get to next week, traces its roots back to the Old Testament. In fact, the armor that God gives us to fight this spiritual battle, as we're about to see today, is literally God's armor. Meaning this is armor that God, first and foremost, that he wore. So God clothes us with his own armor. The same armor that Christ wore on our behalf when he came the first time, as we're going to see this morning, that he'll be wearing when he comes the second time, God gives to us. And just think about the six pieces of armor that we're going to see. We're going to read about the belt of truth. We're going to read about the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the gospel shoes, the shoes that prepare us to take the gospel out, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. And here's what I want to show you this morning. Five of the six pieces of armor that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6 are found in the book of Isaiah. Did you know that? In Isaiah 11 verses 4 and 5, we have this concept of the belt and we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In Isaiah 52, 7, we have the gospel shoes that proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And then in Isaiah fifty-seven verse 19, or 59, excuse me, verse 17, that we're going to come to this morning is the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. The only piece of armor not mentioned in the book of Isaiah is the shield of faith. And the explanation is that throughout the Old Testament, it is God, not faith, that's the shield for his people. So God is the one that shields us. So therefore, this morning, let us begin this series by looking at our warrior God dressed in armor for us. Therefore, the armor of God is something that God doesn't just provide for us. It's something that God has worn for us. So let's dive in this morning. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Beginning at verse 14, Isaiah writes these words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, today we ask in this moment that you would indeed wake us up to the reality of the spiritual world that we are living in and help us today to see the beauty of our God coming as a warrior to fight for us. That his arm brought us what we could never earn, salvation. Help us to see the beauty, God, of that and the reality of the armor that you offer to us in the midst of this spiritual war that we live in to help us stand. God, awaken us. Awaken us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So when people sign up to serve in one of the branches of the U.S. military, they are given government-issued uniforms and they operate government-owned equipment. So let me, the Army, for example, issues several different types of uniforms. So soldiers receive an Army Green Service Uniform, a Combat Uniform, excuse me, a separate service uniform, and a Physical Fitness Uniform. Moreover, the soldiers operate government-owned equipment. So the radios, the drones, the jeeps, the tanks, the rifles, and the other tools that they use belong to the military, but are provided to the soldiers to fulfill the duties that they have been given. So soldiers engage in battle wearing equipment that has been given, or wearing uniforms that have been given to them using equipment that has been provided for them, in a similar way, yet much greater way, God has provided a uniform, an armor, and equipment for us to stand firm in the midst of spiritual battle. Again, not only does God provide the uniform, he wore the uniform. It's a uniform of righteousness. It's a uniform of salvation by which God earned salvation for us. And here's what we need to know. Here's what you must know this morning. There is a God who fights for us, who has done the ultimate for us. And we must know that because if we don't, when we're suffering, when we're disappointed, when our comfort is interrupted, and the ease that we want. We don't have. We are tempted to bring God into our courtroom, to put God on the witness stand, and we begin to question his goodness, his love, his faithfulness, his concern, and his care for us. And when we begin to do that, listen, when you begin to question those things about God, you won't run to him for help. If you're writing anything down, write this down. You don't go for help to someone you have come to doubt. You begin to doubt God you won't run to him for help and the reality brothers and sisters, we have to know what God has done for us so that we can stand when things don't go our way because let me just remind you today we have a God God doesn't revolve around you our lives revolve around him we just sang a song about his praise think about that reality the Bible says in Psalm 150 let everything that has breath praise the Lord I heard a pastor say one time this what if it said let everything that praise the Lord have breath. He said 50% of churches across the world there would die. 50% of people, if everything that praises the Lord have breath, if God only gives a breath, if we praised him, guess what? We'd praise him a whole lot more. We'd praise him a whole lot more than we do. But understand this reality. We have to trust in him. He has fought for us. He has come to us. He has come for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I want to give us today three pictures from this text that I pray would stir our hearts. Picture number one is this, the anger of God. The anger or the astonishment, we'll see that word, of God. Look at verses 14 and 16 that you see on the screen. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth is lacking. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him or angered him. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. When I hear these verses of life as Isaiah was living, it's hard not to think about the world we live in. No justice, no righteousness, no truth, The truth of God's word has been left behind in our society. We have redefined what's right and wrong according to what we think instead of what God's word says. And what we have done is we we don't pursue righteousness and holiness in our society anymore. Instead, we pursue power and lust and money and prestige. Our world quickly calls evil what God calls good and calls good what God has called evil. The world in which we live brothers and sisters we have it all backwards and if we're not careful we'll buy into it i was at a funeral yesterday and the family asked me to have people stand up and just share and one individual that should know better stands up and talks about the one who passed away and said he was a good man and he's going to be in heaven because of how good he was and all you have to do is be good and you will be in heaven too Brothers and sisters, that is calling evil what God has called good, and that's calling God calling, or us calling good what God has called evil. Yes, we can do good things, but the Bible says there is none good, no, not one. You know how good you have to be to get to heaven? Perfect. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. We can't. Jesus did. We come through him. That is the message, that is the reality, only through Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if we listen to this world, we'll be ashamed of that. I had no problem just say, standing up and saying, your goodness won't get you there, only Jesus will. Yes. Only what we do with him. Let me just say it, say, brothers and sisters, sin is offensive sin separates us from god even as christians when we sin when the holy spirit convicts us if we keep turning away what will happen is this we'll still have a relationship with god but we will have zero fellowship with him and you wonder why people come to church and they have no desire to worship no desire to pray no desire to hear the word of god it's because they're living in sin and they love sin more than they love jesus Brothers and sisters, when you love Jesus more than you love sin, you will turn from sin when the Holy Spirit convicts you because you understand what sin does. So this chapter is basically a laundry list of the people of Israel's sin. In fact, the sins of the Israelites are referred to 32 times in Isaiah 59, and there are 23 charges brought against Israel. Much hasn't changed. Evil is real. Evil is unavoidable in the world in which we live. Yet, in this context, it's not man's sin that angers God. Think about what is it that angers God? What angers God is that no one intercedes. No one is intervening. No one is interceding. And let me me say something that's about to get me stirred up, and I pray to God. I pray to God that the pedestals that we have people on will fall in this moment. Because everyone around this world is looking for someone to bring hope, someone to change things, someone to solve the problems of this world. So you know what we do? We vote for individuals every four years or every two years, and we lift them high up on a pedestal, hoping that they will change things, hoping they'll bring righteousness and truth to this world. And every four years, we are left let down and disappointed. You know why? Because we are trusting in man to do what God has told us as believers we're called to do. Who's supposed to bring truth across this world? Not politicians, us. Who are supposed to be vessels of righteousness? We are. We are. And what we have done is we are okay to vote for people and hope they do right so that we don't have to. That's what we've done in this world. And let me just, in case you haven't been paying attention, it hasn't worked. Every four years, things are worse than they were before. Stop trusting in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and start trusting in the only one who can bring hope. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm saying this with all love. And I I get it. Voting matter. I praise God. I praise God for the freedom that we have and for the rights that we have. And I do believe that we will have to give an account to whom much is given, much is required. We've been given an opportunity to vote. I think it matters what we do with it. But brothers and sisters, stop trusting in man and start putting your trust in the Lord. Oh, to God that we would see that, that we would understand that. And here God looks and think about what God sees. There's no one. There's no one. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but because there was no one, it says that God's own arm brought salvation. Listen, we are in an age where truth is falling. Justice is being shut out. And one of the key areas that's under attack is that salvation is of the Lord. Somehow we are convinced that we can earn our own way. And yet the Bible has never been clearer. Only God's arm can bring salvation. Not Abraham's arm. Not Moses' arm. Not David's arm especially not buddha's arm or muhammad's arm god's arm alone and despite the cloudy haze and lack of justice and truth in our world god is still at work god is still at work and let me be clear before we move on and i want you to hear this god didn't have to care god didn't have to care this was our problem we made our bed. God could have let us eternally lie in it. God could have said. You chose it. You suffer hell. That's what you wanted. Deal with it. Yet praise be to God. That's not the heart of God. That is not the heart of our God. Therefore. When we can't help ourselves, When. No one around us is willing to help us. The one who was offended by sin, the Holy One, became the intercessor for his people. This is absolutely unheard of. The offended one rescues the offenders. When the Lord saw that there was no justice, he entered into the battle himself. Listen, it's not your effort or my effort. It's the strong arm of the Lord that brings salvation. And this God, this God in which we are here today exalting, he is perfectly committed to dealing justly. In fact, sin will be dealt with. Listen, that's comfort for us. Who wants to live in a world that's ruled by people who don't care about justice? Who wants to live in a world where leaders are incapable of being angry about evil? The only Anger that our leaders know about is whatever angers them on their side of the aisle. They're not angered about evil and what evil is, but there is a way in which God's holy anger and his righteous judgment are really the hope of the entire universe. And what I mean by that is this God's anger against sin and his commitment, his commitment to justice, means that every drop of sin will be eradicated from this world. Let me, let me go a little step further. God will not relent until every molecule of sin is removed out of the cell of every heart of every one of God's child or children. God will remove every molecule of sin. And there will be a holy moment where we will live in a, a time and a place where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain. And we will finally be able to go to a funeral that we want to go to. We'll go to the funeral of death and sin. For they will be no more. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. But think about the anger of the Lord. Think about what he's angry about here. No one to intercede. Which leads us to number two, the armor of God. The armor of God. So the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Lord as a heroic redeemer. Coming clothed for battle not in iron and steel but in righteousness in salvation in vengeance and in zeal look at verse 17 on the screen then his own arm brought him salvation he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak listen what an astounding promise but here's the question when did God do this When did we see God putting on his armor to fight for his people? When did we see God fighting to save us from oppression? And I will say today, I suggest that God did this in his son. That when Jesus came, Jesus put on the armor of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness in order to save us from our sin. There's no weapon mentioned here because God's own arm brings salvation. This would be God's doing. God would come, God would fight, and praise God, God would win. He wins. And in coming, God isn't fighting people. God would fight sin. So since no one else would step up, God says, I will step up. When no one else cares about right and good, God does. When no one else cares about the glory of God, God will. I think of the words of David Guzik, who says no man stepped forward to work with the Lord. So the Lord put on his armor and went to destroy his enemies, to protect his people and to glorify his name. So in Isaiah, it's God who puts on this armor and fights on behalf of us so that we will have armor to wear in the midst of our battles. Listen, we will be spiritual victors not because of what we do, but because of what's been done for us. We wear the battle or wear the armor that God used to defeat the enemy. In fact, Philip Rykin says this we get to wear the hand me down armor of Jesus. Now, hand me downs might not be cool, but we get to wear the hand me downs of Jesus himself. And let me show you something before we move on. These Old Testament saints who were receiving this word from Isaiah. They lived in the messiness between the already and the not yet. And what I mean by that is this. Already they had been redeemed from Egypt. Already they had crossed the dry land of the Red Sea. Already they had the law of God given to them. Already they had the prophets. Already the glory of God had dwelt among them through the temple. But not yet had the promised Messiah come. So they were living in the messiness of their world, holding on to hope. Well, today, where we live, we live in the middle of the already and the not yet. Already, Jesus has come the first time. Already, Jesus has lived a perfect life. He died the death for the sins of the world. He conquered the grave so that we could have life eternal. We have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. We have Victory Yet, not yet, has Jesus come to vanquish sin and forever bring vengeance. And not yet are we in that final kingdom where we will bow to Jesus and he will be our king forever and ever and ever. Oh, that we would understand the armor of the one who put it on and the power that he has. Which leads us to picture number three, the action of God. So the action of God. And we can see what we're about to read is really the future action of God. So Isaiah shows the armor, and it's not just ours, it's God's armor. This is what God wears in to battle, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. And it's abundantly clear where salvation comes from. It's not of us, it's from God. So God alone is the source of all of this. So we wear this in the battle, but it has been fashioned for God. And we were able to slide in under him, be protected by him. But think about this. If you look back at verse 17 real quick, not only does Isaiah mention the righteousness or the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, Isaiah also mentions a garment of vengeance and a zeal as a cloak. Now, when we think about that, the garment of vengeance... I'm about to get very fiery in just a second, so bear with me. The garment of vengeance is not clothing for us. God claims that vengeance is only for him. In Romans 12:19, God says, "Vengeance is mine. Thus sa- says the Lord, I will repay." Now I, I need every child of God today to hear this. It is not our place. It is not our job, It's not our concern to make sure that other people are repaid for the wrongs that they have done to us. That's God's doing. Did you hear that today? here, let, me, let, me, let me tell you who I'm talking to. If, they, if you ignore this, let me tell you who I'm talking to. Someone who will become so bitter and so nasty and so angry because you want to repay everybody for the things they've done to you. And therefore, what you will do is you will hurt yourself and you will basically um, take down and tear down the name of God as you claim to possess and to own. And you will do nothing for the kingdom of God except make everybody inside want to stay away from you. Listen, don't live that life. Trust vengeance to God. He is trustworthy. Listen, let me put it this way. God will make every wrong right. He will make every wrong right. You can trust him. And then in verse 17, it says that there is a cloak of zeal. Jesus wore this zeal. It ate him up. And we are to have the zeal. Think about this. Is zeal for the Lord an accurate description of your life? Are you zealous for the Lord? Are you you excited for the Lord? What I pray that we see in this series is it's not enough to just put on the armor of God. We need to be in constant communication with the God of the armor. It's not enough just to have knowledge of all of the armor. You can name them all and you can memorize the verses if you're not in a relationship and fellowship with the God of the armor. Just listen to what comes next in verses 18 and 19. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And if you want to know when all that will happen, read Revelation 19. And when you read Revelation 19, you'll read about righteousness. You'll read about truth. You'll read about the word of God coming from the mouth of Jesus or that sword. Listen, we rejoice in what Christ has done for us, and we entrust all vengeance to him because of what he will do. He will make every wrong right. And we will come to see that every battle, every wound, every scar that we have, every hurt, every pain, every broken thing that's happened as we have walked through these battles, every one of them, when we see Jesus, will be proven to have been worth it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It'll be worth it all when we see him. I want to close this morning by thinking about what Jesus did for us when he put on the armor of Isaiah 59 17. Jesus wore the breastplate of righteousness to give us a righteousness that we don't possess. The Bible says that your righteousness and my righteousness are are filthy rags. So the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become his righteousness. He's given us his righteousness. Jesus Put on the helmet of salvation to rescue us because we can't save ourselves. Jesus will wear the garments of vengeance to defeat the dark powers that torment us. And he will make all wrongs right. Jesus dressed in this zeal to enter a war that we could never win. To triumph so that if we trust in him, hear this, we will never lose jesus entered into a war we could never win so that if we trust in him we will never ever lose jesus is the triumphant warrior who defeated satan who defeated death who defeated sin and through his faithfulness and his righteousness we have power in the midst of the battle because jesus stood firm we as christians As weak as we are, as fearful as we are, as unprepared as we often are, because Jesus stood, we'll stand as well. We'll be able to stand. And by faith, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. In Christ, we have him as our shield, as our refuge. And he will never leave us, and he won't forsake us. Let me close with some words that were written In 1709, by a minister and hymn writer by the name of Isaac Watts, he wrote songs such as Joy to the World, he wrote When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and he wrote this unknown hymn called Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And just listen to these words as you see them on the screen. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name. Listen, are you a follower of Jesus? Does does talking about Jesus make you uncomfortable? Does it embarrass you? He says this, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed on bloody seas? Meaning, are we going to lift high all of these brothers and sisters and prophets and, and apostles who gave their life for Jesus, and yet expect that God's supposed to just make it easy for us? And then he goes on to say this. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Meaning, the difficulties of this world are meant to make us long for another world. The difficulties that we face here are meant to remind us that this world is not our home. Meaning, let me, let me say this this morning. If you are not a child of God, then this is heaven for you. This is the only heaven you will ever experience if you're not a child of God. If you are a child of God, then this is the only hell we'll ever experience. Because there is coming a day we will be with him forever and ever. And then it says this, sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil. I'll endure the pain supported by thy word. Oh, that, may that be who we are. May that be. Let me just remind us where we're going over the next seven weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the enemy that we face, that there is an enemy. And the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our, our enemy is Satan. And here's the problem. When we don't see our enemy as Satan, then everybody who wrongs us becomes our enemy. Everybody who does me wrong becomes my enemy, and that's not the picture of Scripture. Listen, you might hurt me, but you're not my enemy. Satan's my enemy. He will forever be my enemy. May we understand that reality. Or we're going to have a lot of enemies in this world that aren't the enemy. But let me also remind us of this. Brothers and sisters, if you're not careful, the enemy will use you too. If you're not careful, the enemy will use you too. So we're going to look at the enemy. Then we're going to look at the belt of truth and see that Jesus is the truth. Truth is a person. Then we're going to see the breastplate of righteousness, that we are wrapped in his righteousness alone. We're going to see the gospel shoes and see that we are called to take the good news out into our communities and to this world. We're going to see the shield of faith and come to understand that faith still pleases God. We're going to see the helmet of salvation and understand that we need our minds protected against the messages that come at us in this world. And then the sword of the Spirit. We are going to lift high the Word of God that's living and powerful and is the source of all truth. We're going to lift this high oh that we would be awakened to what god has done for us and oh that we will be awakened to the battle that's waging and that we are on the battlefield and oh to god that we would endure together i'm gonna go ahead and ask you to stand as i call the praise team forward and let us pray together father i come before you now and lord i thank you for this your word Lord, as as deep as that might have been or as fiery, Lord, as I might have been, God, the reality is, oh, God, today I pray for anyone in the sound of my voice that doesn't know you. God, our only hope is Jesus. It's not in our good works. It's not in trying to achieve anything. It's in Jesus what you have achieved for us. So I pray if there are any that has never trusted Christ that today would be the day of salvation. But I also pray, God, that you would take us as professing believers and you would wake us up. Wake us up to the spiritual world and the spiritual war that we are in. Wake us up to the fact there is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. An enemy that's like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Wake us up to the armor that we have that we are able to resist the devil and we were able to watch him flee. That we're able to draw near to you, God, and you will draw near to us. Lord, finish this time in a way that brings you glory, honor, and praise. So that we say, God, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you, God, for putting on the armor, for coming to the battlefield, and for defeating the enemy. Thank you, God. Thank you that your arm brought salvation. Thank you that salvation is still of the Lord. Finish this time in Jesus' name.